Please turn once more to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. Go and read again just the verse number 3 of the section we've read together. Romans 9, the verse number 3. Our Paul utters these profound words. For I could wish that myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Please, let's bow together again in prayer. We're back into the glorious page of Scripture in the book of Romans. And yet with their glory, there come certain challenges. We need the Lord's help again. Uh, please pray for yourself as we restart this series that God would uh, give you grace week by week uh, to study the Word of God, to search the Scriptures, to ensure these things are so, and uh, to know the blessing of God in the understanding of His precious Word. Let's all please pray. Eternal God, we do come with a sense of our need. We realize, O oh Lord, that in all the Scriptures there are some of those profound concepts contained in this portion of Scripture. We're coming to things that are deep and mysterious. In fact, in this chapter, we realize, O oh Lord, that there is the timing of putting our hand upon our mouths, realizing that thou art God and we are but men. Help us, O Lord, to have that humble spirit when we come to the Word of God week by week. We thank you for the privilege that is ours to study Scripture, to have the Bible in our own language, uh, to plumb the depths of the Word and seek to discern your ways in this world. We thank you, Lord, that uh, again, coming over all of these things, overarching all of this truth, is the fact that thou art a God of kindness and mercy, and you delight to save sinful men. Oh God, may these things comfort our hearts and encourage us in these difficult days. Grant us grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I felt this week a little bit like a metaphorical hill walker. I don't know, I used to like hill walking as a, as a child, and we have a beautiful range of mountains, small mountains in Northern Ireland called the Mourne Mountains. And they're small enough that you can do several peaks on one day. And the experience of the hill walker is, you go up one peak, you get to the top, you see the view, you go down, and then next is another peak. And they come one after the other. Well, having ended Romans chapter 8 some years ago, I embarked upon studying Romans chapter 9 and find myself immediately confronted with yet another mountain. There's another large mountain peak before us. Immediately you're confronted with one of the most challenging verses that Paul wrote. I could wish that myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. What are we to do when faced with yet another mountain peak in the scriptures? Well, what do you do with every mountain? You take one step at a time. And so it is in this portion of God's word. And again, I was conscious before in Romans uh, that the sermons in Romans, they, they feel a little different than some other uh, sermons you can preach. You've got to take things in small chunks, little by little, bite by bite, and try to make your way through the material. So let me begin with the reminder. Chapter 9 follows chapter 8. An obvious assertion, but we should never forget it. I've taken a large break in our studies, and it may give you the idea that, well, chapter 8 finishes one part of Romans, and, and now we go on to a, a brand new part, and they're not connected. Well, they are intrinsically connected. 
And you've got to keep that in mind. But even while we remind ourselves of the connection from chapter 8, we should also see that there's a, an issue in Romans being left hanging for eight chapters. You go back to chapter 1. And you see in chapter 1, the declaration of Paul's determination to preach the gospel. His zeal, his readiness, his eagerness to preach the gospel in Rome. And again, you know the very well-known verse, verse number 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. To the Jew first. And also to the Greek. Now it is that last section that's been left hanging all these chapters. Oh yes, he's dealt with the unity and the similarity of Jew and Gentile. They both are under the law. They're both guilty of breaking the law. They both come to faith the same way. They, they both come to justification the same way through Christ alone. There's all these similarities. But what about the, to the Jew first and also to the Greek? Well, in part, Romans 9 through 11 will seek to address that particular issue. Again, these three chapters do come as a unit of thought. And through them all, you're going to see various descriptions regarding God's purpose for Israel and also his redemptive purpose for the Gentiles. So that's part of it. But I believe there's also a significant link to chapter 8 that we should not note or we should not ignore. At the end of chapter 8 concludes with these words, Nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul is really in the heights of devotion, reminding himself and his readers that the love of God in Christ is a secure and an eternal, unfailing love. And I believe what happens next is that as he is writing or dictating these words, he contemplates his own people. Nothing will separate the child of God from the love of God in Christ. But his own people are, verse 3, literally, apart from Christ. Those two words, from Christ, as we'll see later on, indicate that the people of God, his own brethren, are separated from the love of God. The children of God, they know this unity, they know this unfailing love. But the Israelites, they are not in that blessed state. They are separate from God in Christ. But how can that be? How can that be true of Israel, of all people? Well, we've noticed in this book, in God's gospel, Jews and Gentiles are saved by faith in Christ. But if the Jews do not trust in Christ, what about God's promises? Is God untrue to his word? Is he unfaithful? You see, verse number 6 makes that point. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect. Again, that's the, the clue to the issue here. If, if the people of God know this love of Christ, but the Jews don't, well, could not be said that God's word is not coming to pass, given their status and their privilege, verses 4 and 5. How do we solve this problem? What about God's promise to ethnic Israel, to Paul's kinsmen according to the flesh? 
Well, if that kind of reminds you of the overarching structure and the connections, what about this section, verses 1 through 5? How do you study that? Again, I hope you appreciate that my burden as a pastor is to not only preach sermons, but also show you how I get to certain conclusions. And my desire is that you also would then understand the methods of study to then come up with your own conclusions in your own studies. Well, verse number three is what we might describe as the central clause in this section. And it is a section. I say the truth in Christ all the way down to God bless forever and then the amen. The central clause in that is Paul saying, I could wish that myself were accursed. The four at the beginning of that clause takes us back to the first two verses. And then after that, the who of verse number four leads on from his description of his kinsmen according to the flesh. So if you're going to if you're going to understand this section, you've got to see that central clause as the main issue and really sketch your outline around the thought of Paul's expressed wish. He says, for I could wish. Now, Again, please note the strength of that word. It is a word that is consistent with prayer. Again, it's used that way in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse number 7. Now I pray to God that ye do no evil. Again, it's being used, the same word, uh, wish here in Romans chapter 9, but praying to God, 2 Corinthians chapter 13. It's also used for prayer by James, confess your faults one to another and pray. Pray one for another or wish the best one for another. But this, this desire is a desire that's, that's coming to God in prayer. That's the seriousness and the strength of his desire. So let me give you an outline of these five verses. The first thing is really the sense or the meaning of his desire. What does he mean when he says, I could wish that myself were accursed? What's the meaning of that desire? What's the the meaning of that prayer? Secondly, then, there is the scope of this desire. The scope. Now, I'm going to suggest to you the scope of this desire at this point is limited to ethnic national Israel. I'm not suggesting for a second that Paul has no such burden for lost Gentiles. I'm not suggesting that, okay? Understand that. But in this particular section, he's expressing his burden, and the scope of that burden is limited to ethnic national Israel, described here as my kinsmen, according to the flesh, or my brethren, the previous phrase. National Israel. Again, we should see there is a distinction to be made here. Verse number 6 makes the assertion, For they are not all Israel which are of Israel. And thus there is a distinction in the word of God between what we might term spiritual Israel, those who walk by faith in God and trust in Christ as Messiah, and national Israel, those who are part of the ethnic company arising from Abraham, and even before Abraham, the children of Shem. And so you have, again, the scope of his desire. And there are details given regarding the Jews, their, their privilege, their patriarchy, their promises, their peril. All those things are given in the context here as well. So you've got the sense of his desire. What does it mean? I haven't answered that question yet. I'm just saying that's where we're going to go. You've also got the scope of his desire, limited here to ethnic national Israel. 
Then in third place, you've got the sincerity of his desire. That's verses 1 and 2. And he repeats himself in various ways. I say the truth. I lie not. My conscience bearing witness. There are three ways in which he emphasizes his sincerity that he has great heaviness and sorrow in his heart. That's the sincerity of his desire, but we'll get there as well. But we're going to get to none of that tonight. That's likely next week's outline. At least for tonight it is. That's the outline of the section. But tonight, you see, if we're going to get a feel for Paul's burden, we need to consider his description of the lost Jew. We need to really begin to understand what is provoking this burden in his soul. And his burden is provoked by the privileges of the people of God and their perilous state being out of Christ. And so that's what I think we should do tonight. A people who are privileged, but in eternal peril. Again, I emphasize, he is looking at this as a nation. He's not reflecting upon particular individuals because there are some, even in Paul's day, who, like himself, were converted to Christ from ethnic Israel. He's looking at this on a national level. Again, because God's covenantal promises were on a national level. And Paul here is thinking of the nation as a whole. Again, down in verse number uh, 27, he emphasized this point. Though the number of the children of Israel be the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. He's not ignoring the remnant. But his burden is for the nation as a larger body. He's concerned for the unbelief of national Israel. So let's think of this again. You'll see in your outline, I've given you six headings. We're going through this very, very quickly tonight. They are, first of all, a people who are chosen of God. A people chosen of God. Now here I'm, I'm tying together some of these uh, uh, phrases in verses 4 and 5. And there are three in particular that come to mind that emphasize God's choice of them. They are the Israelites. They have the adoption and whose are the fathers? Those three things to me all together point to the fact that this is a people chosen of God. The fathers. Well, who, who are the fathers here? I think immediately we would say they are the patriarchs going back to Abraham. And on this occasion, you'd be absolutely right. Look back at chapter 4 and verse number 11. Chapter 4 of Romans and verse number 11. And he received as Abraham the sign of circumcision, the seal of the righteousness of the faith, which had yet been uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe. Verse 12, and the father of the circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only. Abraham is the, the father of the faithful. He's the father. And then chapter 9 of Romans, again back to chapter 9, and you have the reference in verse number 10, even by our father Isaac. There is this, this reference to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, also included in this chapter. These are the patriarchs, the fathers of the people of God. That immediately points to God's choice. Abraham was in a foreign land. And the Lord says to Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred, from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee God sovereignly graciously put his love upon Abraham and his seed. Out of all the men, in all the nations, in all the places, God 
handpicked Abraham in his eternal purpose and counsel. Now, from Abraham, of course, come Isaac and Jacob. And Jacob, then, is the one who is called Israel. And so you get the idea, whose are the fathers? Uh, again, connecting back to verse number four, who are Israelites? They are the children of Jacob. Again, you turn back, please, to Genesis chapter 35. Genesis chapter 35. This uh, confirms what happens in Bethel earlier, where God calls uh, Jacob Israel. That's chapter 32. Uh, but I'm going to draw your attention to chapter 35, verse number 10. And God said unto him, Thy name is Jacob. Thy name shall not be called any more Jacob, but Israel shall be thy name. And he called his name Israel. And God said unto him, and here's the, the significance. He's called Israel. I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall be of thee, and kings shall come out of thy loins. And the land which I gave Abraham and Isaac, to thee I will give it, and to thy seed after thee will I give the land. And so again, you're, you're seeing here that, that this is a people chosen of God to be the recipients of God's special blessings. The patriarchs. Now, that also connects to the fact that to them pertains the adoption. Now here, I don't believe in Romans 9, Paul is referring to adoption in the same way that he refers to it in Romans 8 or Galatians 4. The adoption here refers to Israel as a nation, as being the sons of God. You see that, just one reference, there's more than one, but one is Jeremiah chapter 31. Turn across to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, verse number 9. The word of God says, They shall come with weeping and with supplications will I lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of waters in a straight way, wherein they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Again, these are descriptors of the people of God, and they are the children, the sons of God, of all the nations. Theirs are the fathers. To them pertains the adoption. Of no other nation can these things be said. They are the children of Abraham and the children of God. They are distinct and a special and a chosen people unto God. Why? Because they were more in number? No. Deuteronomy chapter 7 makes it clear the Lord did not set his love upon you nor choose you because you're more in number than any people. For ye were the fewest of all people, but because the Lord loved you. You see, right at the beginning of Paul's burden is this realization that his nation, his kinsmen, are the chosen of God. Nationally, God set his love upon them not because of their might or their power, but because of the sovereign love of God. And if that's the case, how come they are where they are right now? They are a people chosen of God. But secondly, they are a people under the gracious command of God. Again, here I'm drawing your attention, Romans chapter 9, verse number 4, uh, to that clause, and the giving of the law. The giving of the law. Again, I think the word law here is being used in the broadest sense. They are the recipients of those who received the word through Moses on Mount Sinai. And the various aspects of the law, 
but they are those who were given the law. Now, this is conceived of as a blessing. Children fail to appreciate this sometimes. Those growing up in a Christian home will often say, in their rebellion, I wish I had nothing of God's law in my life. They can resent the law of God in their home. They can resent the giving of the law. But here, the giving of the law is determined by Paul to be a blessing, along with the adoption and the glory and the service of God. This is a blessing. You see, we understand the law is that which reveals God's character and God's will. And the law is for the good of mankind. And it's always, always, always better to know God's law than not. It's always better to have a knowledge of the law of God. Oh yes, in our conscience, Romans 2, we are without excuse, even those who do not have the law of God in their hands. But it's a privilege to have the law of God. The guidance to know this is the way of blessing. This is the way of prosperity, even in this world. To live according to God's law. There are people under the gracious command of God. Thirdly, there are people who enjoy communion with God. Here again, I'm going to pull together a couple of things. Who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, and the glory. And then later on, and the service of God. And the glory. Again, traditionally, the glory here was felt to refer to the presence of God in his Shekinah glory. The pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire, the presence of God over the holy place. Again, when atonement is offered and God comes down, the glory of God in his presence. I would say one thing. I believe that is the right interpretation, but I won't ignore one other thought that comes to mind in this. Over in chapter 9 and verse number 23, there's a reference to glory that looks to the future. Romans 9, 23, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory. And again, there are some uh, who are writing on this material, and they're suggesting that the glory involved in Romans chapter 9 is the future glory expected for the people of God, the Israelites. And so they see it in that regard. But I don't think these things are in conflict. The future glory later on in chapter 9 is pictured in the glory that Israel knew in the wilderness. Because what is our hope and our glory? It is being with Christ forever and forever. It is in communion with God. And so, yes, the people of God in the Old Testament, they knew the glory. They knew the presence of God. And that foreshadows the future glory that we will all enjoy as the vessels of God's mercy. The glory. But there's also the matter of the service. This word service, the service of God, is a word that denotes divine biblical worship. It's used particularly in Hebrews chapter 9, uh, regarding Old Testament worship. Romans 9 verse 1, Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service. The first tabernacle accomplishing the service of God. Romans 9 verse 6. So the service here is the worship of God. 
So let's put this together. I've given you the, the title here. These are a people who enjoyed communion with God. They enjoyed the revelation of God's presence. The word of God in their ears. The presence of God in their worship. The sacrifices of God. The ground of this communion. They knew forgiveness of sins. And then God comes down. No other nation knew that blessing. The blessing of the Most High God coming and dwelling with them. You see all this together. Turn back please to Exodus chapter 29. And just one cross reference that ties all this together. Exodus chapter 29. And the verse number 42. This shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generation at the doors of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord, where I will meet with, or I will meet you to speak there unto you. And there I will meet with the children of Israel, and the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory. And I will sanctify the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar. I will sanctify also both Aaron and his sons to minister to me in the priest's office. Aaron and the sons to them was giving the service of God. They were given the, the regulations and instructions as to how to bring atonement for the people of God. That was their duty. And what comes as a result of that? God comes in his glory and meets with them there. That was the enjoyment of the Old Testament people of God. I, I understand the storyline, the history, their disobedience, their rebellion, their rejection, the Shekinah glory leaves, the temple, I understand all of that, but I'm saying to them, in their foundational years, these were their blessings, their blessings. They enjoyed the glory and the service. Fourthly then, they are a people who received the covenants of God. Again, back across to Romans chapter 9, you have that direct assertion. Here are the Israelites to whom pertain the adoption and the glory and the covenants. The covenants. Again, commentators love to debate these things. Which particular covenants? Well, why do we have to narrow it down? I think certainly we see God coming in covenant and mercy to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then to the people of God through Moses, and to David after that. There are these divine covenants that reveal the redemptive purpose of God. You see, you look across to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Again, it's often the case in our series in Romans, I'm encouraging you to bear with me through the teaching component of this, and we'll try to make application going along, but Ephesians chapter 2, and the verse number 12, you have the reference again to the Gentiles, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise. Now here Paul ties together two words that he used in Romans chapter 9, covenants and promise. And it reminds us that the people of Israel, they received the covenant promise of God, those promises that pertain to redemption, to a coming Messiah to salvation through Messiah, ultimately to the new covenant. They received that, Jeremiah 31, the promise of their sins and their iniquities being remembered no more. They received all of these covenants. What a blessedness. I will be their God, and they will be my people. I will bless them. 
In blessing, I will bless them in so many various ways. So what do you think of Romans chapter 9? What is Paul highlighting here? Well, he's telling the people here, these are the people who received God's covenantal assurances, who had the revelation of God, that he is a God of grace. Now, right here and now, you hear those words, God is a God of grace, and you go, yeah. What did the pagan nations think of their so-called gods in the Old Testament? Not a God of grace. A God who required his wrath satisfied because he was always angry towards them. They did not perceive their fictional gods as being gods of grace, but gods of vengeance. God reveals himself, yes, as a thrice holy God who deals with sin, but in covenantal language he comes as a God who is willing to bless. That again becomes significant later on in chapter 9. I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. It's a blessing to know that God is a God of grace. Fifthly, they are a people to whom Christ came. Right, as of now, my intention is to preach an entire sermon on the reference there, Christ came over all, God blessed forever. I think that warrants an entire sermon on the doctrine of Christ. But for now, please note what it says here. Whose are the fathers, verse 5, and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came. Christ came. John 1, he came unto his own. Romans 1, verse 16, to the Jew first, and also to the Gentile. Jesus came as a Jewish Messiah to a Jewish people. Sixthly, after highlighting all of those privileges, they are sixthly a people under the curse of God. That, to my mind, is implied by Paul's language in verse number 3. For I could wish that myself were a curse from Christ. The implication in the reflexive pronoun myself is that he is wishing upon himself that which is presently true for those under his burden. He's desiring that he would experience what they now experience. Now again, we're going to take care to define Paul's prayer and wish in this regard. What does it really mean? We'll get there. But for now, I think we can say that in verse number 3, he is giving us an implied description of the state of the majority of Israel in his time. Yes, there was a remnant saved according to the election of grace, but the majority of Israel in his time, they are a curse from Christ. That was their state. The word accursed here is a word that you'll know. It is the word anathema. Now before we look at this in some detail, please note that Paul's burden here is the wrestling in his own mind between their present state and their privileges. You see, their privileges indicate the covenantal faithfulness of God. 
Why has he got this burden? Because of all their privileges, it shows that they are God's chosen people. There is no place in the New Testament church for anti-Semitism. No place at all. They are a people favored of God. National Israel favored of God in God entering into covenant with them. And Paul has this burden and this concern for Israel. Because God did in history, for his own purpose, choose one nation. He entered covenant with one nation. He sent them the Messiah. And God's promises are sure. And they are sure because a remnant is saved. And when we get to chapter 11, we will see that Gentiles are engrafted into the existing branch. God's favorite Israel does not terminate, but rather expands and extends to include Gentiles like you and me. The blessing of the covenants belong to us as well. But believing Jews also enjoy these blessings. Those who do believe like Paul, they enjoy the same blessings as we enjoy. Galatians 3 makes it clear that all who believe in Christ are the children of Abraham, Jews and Gentiles alike. But at this point in general, we're not seeing at this point in time in this part of the scriptures, we are not seeing again the fulfillment of faithfulness at this point. We are seeing the tragedy of their lost state. Because in general, they have been guilty of rejecting Jesus as Messiah. And the consequence of their rejection is being brought under condemnation. They are accursed. I hear I've got to say something very, very important. No one goes to a lost eternity because they reject Christ. The rejection of Christ is but one more sin to add to the catalog of sins already committed. Sinners go to hell due to God's wrath against them for their sins. And so when it says they are accursed, it is emphasizing that they are facing eternity outside the provisions of the grace of God in Christ Jesus. They are still in their sins. They are still guilty of their sins. And therefore they are under condemnation. Verse number 3 of chapter 9. They are accursed. Corresponds to verse number 1 of chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation. For them which are in Christ Jesus. But for them who are out of Christ Jesus. There is all the condemnation. An infinite weight of condemnation upon those who are out of Christ. Including unbelieving Jews, no matter their privilege. You see, Paul is going to show us later on in chapter 10 that the Jews were indeed guilty of rejecting the gospel. Look at chapter 10, verse 20. He quotes from Isaiah chapter 65. Chapter 10, verse number 20. But Isaiah is very bold and saith, I was found of them that sought me not, referring to Gentiles. I was manifest unto them that asked not after me. But to Israel, he saith, all day long I have stretched forth my hands unto disobedient and gainsaying people. And again, the context is of God's open-armed mercy towards Israel, and yet their rejection of his mercies. And in light of that, they are still in their sins. You see, Christ himself and his ministry warned of this. Turn back to Matthew chapter 8. The unbelief of Israel was in the forefront of Christ's mind. There is a centurion of Capernaum 
Matthew 8, verse number 5. The Lord marvels, verse number 10, that is faith. Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith. No, not in Israel. And the point is, where should you expect to find such faith but in Israel? To those who had the covenants, to those who had the glory and the service, surely there be faith but not in Israel. And he says in verse 11, And I say unto you, that many shall come from the east and the west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. You see the description there. Israel and Jerusalem viewed in the, as, the, as the center of the world. And those outside Israel, they come and they, they sit down with the fathers in the heavenly kingdom. But verse 12, But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into the darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. They are accursed from Christ. And the same is over in chapter 21 of Matthew. And the verse number 42. Jesus said unto them, Did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? The same has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing and is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore say unto you, The kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. The warning of judgment. So let's, keeping in mind that thought of rejection, consider the description that is given of their lost state in Romans 9, again, verse number 3. They are described as being accursed from Christ. They are guilty and under condemnation. This word anathema really is drawn from the Old Testament scriptures or literally from the Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures. If you were to pick up a Greek Old Testament and read Alexa Joshua chapter 6 and the things that were devoted, that word is Translated with the word anathema in the Greek Old Testament. You see it, Joshua chapter 6 and the verse number 17. And the city shall be accursed. The same word, anathema, when you get to the New Testament scriptures. It is a word that Paul uses always in the negative. And 1 Corinthians chapter 16 verse number 22 is a very significant reference. 1 Corinthians 16 and the verse number 22. Where Paul says, if any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema maranatha. Let him be accursed. The one who stubbornly refuses to put their affection on Christ Jesus, may they come under the curse and the condemnation of God. That's the first part of this. They are accursed. Under the condemnation and wrath of God, awaiting final judgment. But secondly, I want you to see that it says they're a curse from Christ. Now, you may read that and see that as being a description of one particular issue. I want to suggest to you that there are two things in view here. On the one hand, they're under the curse of God, they're accursed. But on the other hand, they are described as being separated from Christ. The words that are used here, from Christ, mean that they are away from Christ. It's a distinct thought. They are accursed 
away from Christ. You see, we see that used, at least the, the structure is used in one other place. It's over in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And it describes the state of those when Christ returns. Those who are accursed and then come under the wrath of God. It's 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, the verse number 9. Again, the same structure is used here. The same words. 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 9. Who shall be punished with everlasting destruction. Here's the same basic structure. From the presence of the Lord. The same preposition is used there. From. And this time not just the one word Christ. But from the presence of the Lord. But they are separated from the presence of Christ. That is their final state. But their final state is a reflection of their present state. In this earth, they were away from Christ. And so in death and in judgment, they shall be away from Christ forevermore. That's the sense of this. Despite their privileges, they had rejected Jesus, Messiah. And they were outside fellowship with God, under God's condemnation. I want you to please understand what it means to be outside of Christ tonight. I think if I said to you that every blessing you enjoy as the children of God is found in Christ, wouldn't you assert that? I hope you would. Everything you enjoy as a child of God is because of Christ. As Calvin described it, every spiritual blessing comes wrapped up inside Christ. You get the gift of Christ and you get every spiritual blessing. Everything we enjoy is found in Christ. Forgiveness, adoption, peace with God, all of these things, they are found in Christ Jesus. Now, if it is the case that all grace is found in Christ, then it's also the case that there is no grace found outside of Christ, no saving grace outside of Christ, which then means that those who are cut off from Christ, those who are separate from Christ, they are devoid of any spiritual grace. They know no grace. Again, I'm not describing the common grace of the sun and the rain, but they know nothing of anything of the grace of God because God's grace is only found in Christ. And to be outside of Christ is to live without any grace. Is it any wonder that Paul says, I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart? He understands things that we are just scratching the surface of. He understands the solemnity of people who he loves ethnically, those of his kinsmen, he loves them. And his heart is burdened for their spiritual state. We ought not to read those three words, a curse from Christ, without feeling the weight of those words for all who are out of Christ in this building and outside this building tonight. If you're not saved tonight, you're under the curse of God. For those who do not believe the gospel, the wrath of God abides upon them. Anathema is written over your head. You're outside of Christ. 
devoid of every spiritual blessing. Feel the weight of that, please, tonight. Feel the burden of your lost condition. And run into Christ. You see, as we close, please note the things that Paul considers a privilege. The revelation of God's law. The revelation of the gospel and the covenants. A sense of the reality of God's presence, the glory and the service of God. Dear people in this church, you have all of these blessings. You have the very same blessings. You have a revelation of God and His grace. You have a revelation of God and His law. You know God to be a judge of all the earth, yet you know God to be gracious. And you have a sense of God's presence in worship. You're in the place where the people of God come together and praise His name. You have those same blessings. And yet, are you going to make the same mistake? And reject the Christ of God? Are you going to spurn Christ tonight in the gospel? Such privilege. And yet a curse from Christ. Today is the day of salvation. Your present state need not be your eternal state. Praise God, there were those who perhaps, as Paul wrote, were accursed from Christ, who then came to know Christ and were loved of God and enter the glory and the blessedness of Christ forevermore. I hope you get this. I hope we begin by God's grace to have something of this great heaviness and continual sorrow in our hearts. What drives our prayer lives? What drives our evangelism? Well, I hope you would say the glory of God in Christ Jesus. But there is a tremendous driving force in the consideration of what it means to be a curse from Christ. Without God and without hope in the world. Please join with me in prayer. Let's seek God's face. I'm going to pray a, a general prayer, praying for God to stir our hearts with regards to the need in this area. But I know all of you have burdens for people out of Christ. And with their names in your mind, join in prayer. Lord God, have mercy upon the lost. There are some, O oh Lord, that are near and dear to us, and they have known unspeakable spiritual privileges. And yet right now they're a curse from Christ. O oh Lord, for the glory of your Son, and for their eternal good, be pleased to save their souls. Work in their hearts, O God, by the power of your Spirit. We thank you, Lord, that for the names upon our minds right now, the book is not closed. There's still time. O Lord, make no tarrying. Speedily come and show them mercy, we pray. For your name's sake. Bless this word to your hearts. Help us to understand these things. And that we begin to feel something of the burden of the apostle. 
and that we might share that same burden. Lord God, bless our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.